Treason, Sedition, Rebellion. This is the heritage of the American patriot. Those revolutionaries who stood on principle to fight against tyranny no matter the cost. And that spirit lives strong today in the activists and freedom fighters who fight against the authoritarian state. Each in their own way, each with their own mission, united for the cause. had the idea to run on a platform of fuck the police prior to actually winning the primary. I mean, AOC is a drama queen and she's full of shit. They said, you don't get to tell us no, we're in the state health department, and I said, hell no. You brought a freaking guillotine. People already pushing back in ways that didn't even need any votes to be cast. I'm not ratting on anybody, and I did what I did, so you're going to have to give me what the law says you have to give me. You want to make the world a better place? Have some babies, and raise them to not be stupid. Hope I don't get canceled. Talk to you. These are the people whose stories I'm here to share. I'm Justin O'Donnell, and this is Submersive. Man, governments are not going to like this shit. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, activists, anarchists, and people of the internet, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Subversive. As always, I'm your host, Justin O'Donnell. Before we get started, just remember whatever platform you listen on, whether it's Odyssey, YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, or on the air at LRN.fm, you can grow the show by liking, commenting, subscribing, and most of all, sharing with your friends. And if you enjoy the content, you can follow the link in the description to help support the program on Patreon by joining the insurgency at patreon.com slash O'Donnell. I mean, that's patreon.com slash O'Donnell, O-D-O-N-N-E-L-L. And also make sure to check out our sponsor, snackswag.com, where you can get all your favorite Liberty merch, great new designs for T-shirts, coffee mugs, um, sweatshirts, hats, everything out there. You can literally wear your principles and your messaging on your sleeves official podcast merch and some rogue merchandise for our great organizational friends over at the free state project so again check that out it's snackswag.com for your official merchandise today and if you want to keep in touch between shows follow me on social media and join our community discord channel where you can chat about other anything with other fans of the show at any time all these links can be found in the description of the video or podcast that you're listening to now Went French with the title tape, voir dire. Because the defense of liberty must stand firmly in the jury box. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the history of the Crypto Six and the charges being levied against Ian Freeman, um, it's been about a, almost a year and a half, a little over a year and a half, since March 16th, 2021, uh, federal agents and local law enforcement kicking in the doors of Ian Freeman's house in the Free Talk Live studio, the Bitcoin embassy in Keene, the Shire Free Church, and arresting six people and confiscating several uh, Bitcoin vending machines, computers, and other personal items over the crime of selling cryptocurrency without a government permission slip, without permission from the state, and without paying the king's toll. Yet this morning... December 6, 2022, Ian Freeman finally got his day in court, the last of these six to not take a plea bargain or not have his tra- charges dropped. Uh, and his trial started with one of the most crucial steps in the American judicial process, and that's jury selection. I went this morning, I attempted to watch, I attempted to join the proceedings and show my support for Ian by being a member of the audience and uh, participating in this American judicial system, but I was not allowed in because I did not have a mask. Um, many people were not allowed in. Quite a few of my friends. Several uh, tried to appeal and submit a motion to be exempted from the mask rulings, every single one of which was denied by the presiding judge. 
uh, but all of which had to wait several hours. Uh, we had gotten there around 9 a.m., and the judge's rulings were not given out until about 12.30, that all of our motions to join the proceedings without a mask would be denied. Well, that doesn't discredit the importance of the proceedings. It's just disheartening that we weren't allowed to, to witness them, that members of the media and press were kept out of a public hearing for refusing to wear a mask that isn't even recommended by the CDC any longer, and which wasn't required in the same courthouse merely a week ago, which wasn't required in the library hearing at the same courthouse a couple months ago. In what seems like a targeted move to specifically alienate supporters of the Free State Project, the Crypto Six, and Ian Freeman. Now, the first thing we want to talk about tonight is why you shouldn't take the plea bargain. Uh, plea bargains are very, very controversial in the American justice system. In the case of the Crypto Six in particular, of the six individuals arrested, um, Ian Freeman's the only one who either did not take a plea bargain or did not have all of his charges dropped. However, 17 of the 25 charges levied against him, including the Kingmaker charge that carried the mandatory minimum sentence, were all dropped last minute prior to going to trial because the government didn't have the evidence to proceed. Yet the individuals who took plea bargains didn't know the government didn't have the evidence to proceed. And the government coerced, lied, and professed to them that they would be convicted and uh, serve lengthy jail sentences if they didn't take a plea bargain. But all those who took plea bargains are out free, not in jail, just with the felony title slapped on the end of their name. Plea bargains have long been a controversial aspect of the criminal justice system. And while they can appear to be useful in some cases and allowing both the prosecution and the defense to avoid the time, expense, and uncertainty of a trial, they can also be incredibly problematic. In many cases, plea bargains are offered to defendants who are innocent or who may be pressured and coerced into accepting the deal in order to avoid the possibility of a harsher sentence if they're found guilty at trial. In the most severe cases, plea bargains are used to secure convictions in cases where the prosecution knows that they lack sufficient evidence to secure a conviction at a trial. In such cases, the prosecution may offer the defendant a plea bargain in which they agree to plead guilty to a lesser charge in exchange for a reduced sentence. And while this may seem like a good idea for the defendant, it can be problematic because uh, it allows the prosecution to secure these convictions without having to prove their guilt beyond a reasonable doubt to a jury. This is particularly problematic because the burden of proof in criminal cases is supposed to be high. And the job of prosecution is supposed to be difficult. The government shouldn't be able to secure convictions without meeting that lofty standard. Prosecutors will also engage in coercive behavior, levy threats of even harsher punishment in order to convince a defendant to agree to the plea deal. In these cases, prosecution may offer a plea bargain that involves significantly reduced sentence in exchange for a guilty plea. This is very tempting to defendants who are innocent, but who may be concerned about the possibility of being found guilty at trial and facing harsher sentence, or who don't have experience within the criminal justice system, or who don't have the full faith in the public defender because they couldn't afford a top-notch lawyer. This is a serious problem 
because it allows the prosecution to secure these convictions without having to prove the defendant's guilt and very often results in innocent people being wrongly convicted. And even if they don't serve jail sentences, they are slapped with a felony label and a felon for the rest of their lives. And that does hurt you when it comes to employment and banking and loans and living your life. So I implore you all as activists and enemies of the state in your subversive action, should it ever come to it, reject the plea. Rejecting plea bargains is critical and crucial because it helps ensure that the criminal justice system is fair and just. When defendants reject plea bargains, they are essentially saying that they are not willing to accept a deal that allows the prosecution to secure a conviction without having to prove their guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. This helps ensure that the prosecution is held to the high standards of proof that is required in criminal cases. And rejecting plea bargains helps keep other innocent people out of jail. Rejecting plea bargains ensures the justice and fairness of the system in a way that in a way that juries don't even have the power to. For all intents and purposes, the plea bargains shouldn't be offered and shouldn't be considered a viable tool of the state, but they are. But nonetheless, here we are at jury selection. And again, not allowed in. I wasn't allowed in. My friend Bill wasn't allowed in. My other friend Bill wasn't allowed in. Friend Zephan wasn't allowed in. Lee wasn't allowed in. Joa wasn't allowed in. So many great activists who wanted to show their support for Ian Freeman, who just wanted to be present in the room to show potential jurors that Ian had support in the community. Not to speak up, not to influence, not to be a part of the trial, just to be seen and be heard silently. But we were kept from entering the building. Because the federal court's going to manipulate anything the federal court wants to manipulate. But the role of this jury, the 12 men and women who were selected to serve on this jury to hear the arguments and hear the facts of the case is a critical and crucial role in the American criminal justice system. A jury, a group of individuals selected to serve as impartial judges of the facts of the court case. They are responsible for listening to the evidence presented by both the prosecution and the defense and for determining the guilt or innocence of a defendant based on that evidence. One of the most important functions of a jury is to provide a fair and impartial decision-making process. In such a criminal trial, the jury is the only group that are not directly involved in the trial in one manner. This means that they are able to provide an unbiased perspective on the evidence to make a decision based on the facts of the case rather than personal biases or prejudices. This is critical in ensuring that the system is fair and just, and the defendants are not wrongly convicted, or at least it is supposed to be. We all know a great many things in the American criminal justice system don't work as they're designed. But juries also provide an inherent check on the power of the state. In a criminal trial, the prosecution represents the state, and they're tasked with proving the defendant's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. They can sometimes be a daunting task, and the prosecution may be tempted to use its power to secure a conviction even if there's no evidence, such as a plea bargain, 
such as lying about evidence, such about manufacturing evidence, or withholding exculpatory evidence that would prove the innocence of the defendant. But if you do that, you might just get elected vice president. The role of the jury is to act as a safeguard against this kind of abuse of power by carefully considering the evidence and making a decision based on the facts of the case. And only then can the jury help ensure that the state does not wrongfully convict anyone. But juries also provide a sort of legitimacy to the criminal justice system by invoking community involvement in the criminal and criminal justice proceedings. When a jury is selected, it's made up of members of the community where the alleged criminal activity was committed. This means that the people who are making the decision about the defendant's guilt or innocence are members of the same community as both the victim and the uh, defendant. This can help foster a sense of ownership over the criminal justice system and ensure that it is at least seen as a fair and impartial process, even if not be. That's why selecting a jury is a critical task. Voir dire. Voir dire is a legal term. It's a process for choosing individuals who serve on a jury in a criminal case. Voir dire refers to the process of questioning potential jurors to determine their suitability uh, to serve on a particular jury. It's a French term that means to speak the truth. During voir dire, lawyers on both sides of a case will ask potential jurors questions about their backgrounds, experiences, biases, to determine if they can be fair and impartial in hearing the case. This is supposed to help ensure the jury will be able to evaluate evidence and testimony objectively without being influenced by outside factors. Now, unable to witness the proceedings myself this morning, I don't know what questions were asked of the jury. That was really my big excitement was interest in seeing how the lawyers from the state were going to attempt to secure a favorable jury by excluding potential jurors that might be favorable to the Crypto 6 or libertarian ideology. Now, others who were allowed in came out throughout the day to fill us in as we waited outside about what was happening. And apparently some of the questions asked were simply along the lines of, are you familiar with the Free State Project? Have you ever listened to the radio station Free Talk Live? And those questions, those answers enough were enough to get people excused from the jury. As the judge tried diligently to work in conjunction with the state to weed out any potential sympathy. Now, this process is supposed to be important because that composition of the jury will have a significant impact on the outcome of the trial and the outcome of someone's life. By carefully selecting the individuals to serve on that jury, it's possible to ensure that the jury is fair and impartial, or it's possible to influence that jury to be as biased and prejudiced as possible. And most of all, to be representative of the community where the crime was committed. Jury selection is important to help ensure a fair and impartial trial. In a criminal trial, the jury is responsible for deciding the guilt and innocence and sometimes the sentencing of a defendant based on the evidence presented by both prosecution and defense. And it's critical that the jury be made up of people who were able to make this decision without being influenced by their personal biases or prejudices on the surface and in theory. 
But the process of voir dire allows both the prosecution and defense to exclude jurors and allows the judge to dismiss jurors and to create a jury that hopefully nobody's happy with. Because if the prosecution is happy with the composition of a jury, then you sure as hell should not be. And if a defendant is happy with the composition of a jury, then the prosecution shouldn't be so happy with the potential for a conviction that helps their career. Some people think it's important that a jury is uh, selected to be most representative of their community demographically. To accurately uh, reflect the demographics of a community, leading to concerns about fairness of the trial. Historically, there were cases where free black men were accused of crimes, which later on, after their execution, were proven innocent when others confessed. The all-white juries with their inherent biases vehemently spoke again, uh, did not consider the possibility of innocence for a black man in the South. Careful selection and exclusion of jurors is the only way to ensure that a defendant receives a fair and impartial hearing as possible, and it's in the interest of politically motivated prosecutors to value their conviction rates against justice, and the jury box is the last line of accountability against the powers of the state abusing criminal justice reform. Because the jury is more powerful than a judge. The jury is more powerful than a prosecutor. The jury is more powerful than the state that supposedly gives it its breath. The concept of jury nullification, which is the power of a jury to acquit a defendant who is technically guilty of violating law, but who the jury believes should not be punished, is an important one in American justice system. That's because it allows ordinary citizens to have a say in the administrative justice, uh, administration of justice, and to push back against the laws that they believe are unjust or unfair. One of the key values of jury nullification is that it serves as a check against government overreach. It serves as a check against the zealous prosecutors and prohibitive tactics and coercive plea bargains. In many cases, the government may pass laws that are overly restrictive or that are not in line with the values of the community. In such cases, the jury can use its power of nullification to acquit defendants who have technically violated these laws, thereby preventing the government from enforcing the laws that are contrary to the community's values. For example, in the early days in the United States, juries often used their power of nullification to acquit defendants who were charged with violating laws that were seen as overly restrictive or unfair or victimless. For example, there's a long track record of juries acquitting individuals who were charged with violating laws that prohibited the possession of alcohol. Even though these laws were technically on the books, the individuals were undoubtedly guilty and helped prevent the government from enforcing these laws and allowed individuals to engage in activities that were seen as harmless or even beneficial to the community's values. Another value in jury nullification is that it allows juries to take into account extenuating circumstances and deliver verdicts that are more in line with the principles of justice and fairness. In many cases, the letter of the law may not accurately reflect the reality of a particular situation. And juries may feel it would be unjust to punish a defendant based solely on the technicalities of law. In such cases, juries can use their power of nullification to acquit the defendant, even if the defendant technically violated the law. 
many states there are no exemptions for murder and self-defense, where they give you a duty to retreat and don't allow you to use lethal force in the protection of your life, limb, property, or family. Jury nullification finds people not guilty of these crimes on an unfortunately regular basis. Unfortunate in the fact that they had to defend themselves and find themselves asking for a jury's permission. But consider a situation where a defendant's charged with the possession of a small number of drugs for personal use. Under the law, the defendant is technically guilty and, if convicted, would face significant punishment, sometimes mandatory minimum sentences upwards of 10 years. However, the jury might believe that the defendant was struggling with addiction. And that punishing them with imprisonment would not be the best course of action. In such cases, the jury could use its power of nullification to acquit the defendant, thereby allowing the defendant to seek treatment and other forms of support instead of being punished. This is harm reduction. This is community justice. This is restorative justice. Where a jury takes that role and acts in support of its own community. In addition to serving as a check against government overreach and allowing juries to take into account these extenuating circumstances, jury nullification also helps promote public confidence in the justice system. In many cases, individuals feel that the law is unjust. I feel many laws are unjust. Most of those I work with and engage with feel that many laws are unjust. And that the punishment of many particular crimes is overly severe. In these instances, the use of jury nullification can help demonstrate that the justice system is responsive to the concerns and values of the community. Consider a situation where a defendant is charged with a crime that is seen widely as unfair or unjust, such as trading cryptocurrency or helping their neighbors save money and spend money. If the jury uses its power of nullification to acquit the defendant, this can send a message to the community that the justice system is willing to listen to their concerns, and it is not simply a tool for enforcing the law without regard to its fairness. This can help restore public confidence in the justice system and can encourage individuals to have faith in the fairness of the legal process, but only if it is practiced with regularity. Because it takes a juror willing to stand on their principles against the state in order for this to happen. Now, despite these values of jury nullification, there are still disagreements with the concept. Some critics, including at least one New Hampshire state senator I've spoken with, argue that jury nullification can undermine the rule of law by allowing juries to disregard the letter of the law in the favor of their own beliefs and values. This can create confusion and uncertainty about the law, and it can make it difficult for individuals to predict how the law will be enforced. Well, this may seem problematic to those charged with writing and enforcing the laws and attempting to comply with them. The reality is that if the representative jury is nullifying laws passed by the legislature, then those laws aren't truly representative of the will of the people. And maybe those elected to office should take note. Now, there's a fantastic organization known as the Fully Informed Jury Association, FISHA. They're a nonprofit organization seeking to educate the public about the rights and responsibilities as jurors. This organization promotes the concept of jury nullification, which is 
the idea that a jury has the power to acquit the defendant who's been charged with a crime, even if there is sufficient evidence to support the conviction. The Fully Informed Jury Association believes that this power is an important check on the power of the state, and it's crucial in ensuring criminal justice system is fair and just. And uh, founded in 1989 by a group of individuals who were concerned about the erosion of the rights of jurors, uh, they believe the jurors were not being fully informed about their rights and responsibilities, and that was leading to a lack of accountability in the criminal justice system. Since its inception, the Fully Informed Jury Association has worked to educate the public about the concept of jury nullification and to promote the idea that jurors have the power to acquit defendants who have been charged with crimes regardless of the evidence presented. Uh, the Fully Informed Jury Association is a, a nonprofit organization that relies strictly on donations from the public in order to fund their educational programs and initiatives, including literature, campaigns, and lobbying. The organization has a national presence, offers a wide range of educational resources and materials on their website, including videos, articles, and other information about the concept of jury nullification and the rights of jurors. Uh, Fully Informed Jury Association also hosts events, workshops, and other training to support individuals who want to learn more about their rights and responsibilities of jurors. And this organization does play a vital role in ensuring that the criminal justice system is fair and just, and the jurors are able to exercise their power to acquit defendants who have been charged with unfair crimes. I'm looking forward to working with this organization in the near future, helping to lobby for a bill that I helped uh, draft and push on to strengthen juror rights here in New Hampshire and to create a new requirement that judges inform juries about their right to nullify if they find the color of the law to be more distasteful than the crime being charged. Because let's face it, the majority of crimes that are prosecuted by the state are victimless crimes. And a victimless crime is a term that's used to determine, uh, to describe a crime that does not have a direct victim. These crimes often involve activities that are considered morally or socially unacceptable, but that do not cause harm to anyone. The examples of victimless crimes include drug use, gambling, prostitution, tax evasion. Victimless crimes should not be prosecuted because they do not cause harm to anyone else. But in many cases, the people who engage in victimless crimes are simply exercising their freedom of choice. And they are not harming anyone in the process. A person who uses drugs is harming no one other than themselves. A person who engages in prostitution is harming nobody other than themselves. A person engaged in tax fraud is harming literally nobody. But in these cases, prosecution would not just be a waste of resources, but truly serves no useful purpose. Additionally, prosecuting these victimless crimes can be counterproductive. In many cases, prosecuting victimless crimes simply drives them underground and fuels black markets, where they can be more difficult to regulate and control. This can make it more difficult to address any negative consequences that may be associated with these activities. And it can lead to other problems, such as drug abuse, addiction, the spread of sexually transmitted diseases, the uh, trafficking of non-consenting victims. By not prosecuting victimless crimes, it's possible to avoid these negative consequences and focus on the more serious crimes that have actual victims. Furthermore, prosecuting victimless crimes inherently violates the individual rights and liberties because in most cases these crimes are considered to be victimless because they involve activities that are considered to be personal, private. Drug use and sexual activity personal financial decisions don't impact others. Prosecution of these crimes violates the privacy and autonomy of individuals involved and infringes on their rights to make their own choices and their own decisions. By prosecuting the victimless crimes, possible 
it is possible to respect the rights and liberties of individuals and allow them to make their own choices and decisions without the interference of the state. But victimless crimes should not be prosecuted. And their prosecution being counterproductive, violating the rights of the individuals. Instead of prosecuting these crimes, we should focus on prosecuting more serious crimes and of actual victims. The tens of thousands of untested rape kits, the unsolved murders, the blatant theft from the American people of $40 billion by same bank from Friday and FTX to, uh, to fund democratic election machines and rig a uh, stolen election. Maybe these crimes should be investigated. But despite the lack of a victim, the government still prosecutes these crimes, often citing the moral or public health reasons for doing so. However, many people argue that the real reason for prosecuting victimless crimes is not to protect the public, but to exert control and collect revenue. And that is what it is at the end of the day. One way the government uses prosecution is targeting certain groups of people. For example, drug laws are often disproportionately used to target and incarcerate people of color and in minority communities in inner cities. This not only serves to control these communities, but allows the government to justify using resources such as police and prison systems to maintain control of these communities. It also gives law enforcement agencies the authority to decide who is guilty and who is innocent. This allows the police to exercise a great deal of discretion in who they choose to arrest and prosecute, giving them significant power over the lives of individuals. In some cases, law enforcement agencies may use their discretion to target people who are critical of the government or who are seen as a threat to the established order. In addition to exerting control, government uses prosecution of victimless crimes simply to collect revenue. The fines and fees associated with these crimes can be a significant source of income for the government, particularly at the local and state levels. For example, traffic tickets are a common form of victimless crime prosecution, and the revenue collected from these tickets is generally one of the largest sources of funding for local governments. While these crimes may not have a direct victim, the consequences of their prosecution can be far-reaching and far more harmful to the individuals and their communities. The question we leave with is freely trading money a victimless crime. Is denying the public the chance to witness the selection of the jury that's supposed to represent their community a fair and unbalanced justice system? Is the prosecution of political dissidents on politically motivated charges with no backing and a, and a biased jury tailored to government specifications to assist a politically motivated U.S. attorney who seeks higher office a good use of your tax money? We'll find out over the next two weeks, or maybe longer, however long this trial takes. My best wishes to Ian Freeman and his wife, Bonnie, as they wait 
and hope for a jury to do the right thing. But until next time, everybody, thanks for tuning in. And you, be free. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Subversive. Make sure to like, subscribe, and turn on notifications to get alerted every time we go live on YouTube. And make sure to leave some comments and reviews on whatever platform you listen on to let me know what you thought of this episode. And a huge thanks and shout out to our sponsors and the awesome members of the Insurgency on Patreon. If you enjoyed this content, you can join the Insurgency on Patreon by following the links in the description for patreon.com slash O'Donnell. And if you can't catch the show live, you can always catch it the next day on YouTube, Odyssey, Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Breaker, CastBox, and wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts every day. So until next time, everybody, be free.